Hello, I'm Zachary, and you're listening to This Nerd's Opinion. Today we're going to be doing a read-through review of The Hero's Journey by James M. Spawn. The game is currently under Kickstart, with $16,000 pledged of its original $5,000 goal, is about to hit its last adventure stretch goal, and then is pushing towards a player's companion at $20,000. The game currently weighs in at 221 pages, with interior art done by Nicholas Giacondino and Mike Brodu, cover art done by John Hodgson. The internal art is black and white with a sketchy style that I think is very evocative of the setting portrayed. The book starts with an introduction by James as to the reason for the second edition. It boils mostly down to that James wanted to further perfect his vision of what this game could be, and also to break free from the molds of the Swords and Wizardry white box which the game was originally based on, though it still bears many of the same bones in it. Next up is a three-page table of contents. The book doesn't have an index at the back, but the table of contents is pretty robust, and I feel like you probably can do just fine with it. Rule number one, the most important rule, is that the narrator always has the right to modify the rules. In fact, it is encouraged. I think that this is a very good opening rule. This allows players and narrators, this game's GM, to have a very open mindset to how the rules are going to be interpreted and changed throughout the game. This game was built on the bones of an OSR or old school game, though I don't think it was ever actually advertised as such. I can definitely see where James had good reason for putting this in. When reading through the book, I noticed that some rules are very well included and some of them are completely missing. For instance, there's an entire passage on swimming and drowning, but besides mentioning of the thief skills, there is no rules for climbing. So if you're not a thief, do you have no chance to climb? Do you have a small chance to climb? What chance of climbing do you have? And so letting this rule be known up front, it reminds the GMs and the players that some things will be decided at the table, and that's okay. After that, there is an entry about the dice the game uses. It's a fairly standard polyhedral set. Following that, we have the attributes proper, where once stood strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma, Now stand Might, Finesse, Resolve, Insight, Bearing, and Wheel. Most of the time, these differences are minimal, except for trying to push the type of fantasy that James is interested in portraying. As things like, your constitution isn't called into question, but where does your resolve stand? As one other attribute that has been renamed, HP or hit points is also no longer present, and instead is replaced with endurance. In most places, these changes are minor, and it just helps reinforce the type of fantasy that James is trying to portray. The only stat that's of particular note or calling to me that I think is dramatically, wow, that's a new word. I invented a new word today, dramatically. Wheel is a new addition by James and functions very similarly to hero points or bennies in other systems, allowing characters to roll an advantage equal to their modifier or be forced to roll disadvantage equal to their negative modifier. The only thing I personally would have enjoyed seeing included in this section would have been what to do when you have a zero modifier. 
as most characters will have this modifier without some sort of rule behind it it just ends up being a wasted stat after this section is a small table defining the breakdowns between rolled attributes and the modifier they create with a 7 to 14 being an average roll and giving you no modifier at all next is a d100 table with 25 different professions every character receives a profession at character creation that represents their life before becoming an adventurer and the results are weighted based on the lineage you have chosen. So for instance, a dwarf is almost four or five times more likely to become a armorer than any other races. Your profession provides a small bonus to skills related to your former life's profession. So for instance, if you were an armorer, you would know how to repair armor and you would have a chance of perhaps understanding the quality of armor you come across. Where a character that used to have a profession of a sailor might end up with advantage in swimming checks. It also comes with a small set of items that your character will begin play with, ranging from things like a walking stick, a pouch of spices, to loaded dice and weaponry in some cases. Chapter 2 is your lineage, what is commonly referred to as your race in other versions of D&D, and features six different races, most of them being fairly common with dwarf, elf, halfling, half-elf, and human making an appearance, with this one having a particular add-on of the changeling race. Aside from the inclusion of the changeling, two other particular notes are the tables included under each lineage's heading. The first one defining the dice pool that you roll to get your stats, and the second defining the limit that your character can reach with their archetype. For instance, a changeling can reach level 7 of a burglar level 10 of a swordsman, but only level 4 of a knight, with their dice pools also being modified in interesting ways. For instance, the changeling starts with a 2d6 plus 6 in their finesse, but only a 2d6 plus 1 in their bearing. Each race also offers its own list of abilities, with things like dark vision or starlight vision being fairly common. Chapter 3 is Archetypes, this game's version of D&D's classes, and features 8 of them with bard, burglar, knight, ranger, swordsman, warrior, wizard, and yeoman making an appearance. Each archetype has its own requirements for entry. Things like the wizard require a 15 insight, where the yeoman requires only an 8 wheel and an 8 resolve. Many archetypes also have a minimum entry for skills within them. For instance, the wizard requires a resolve of 13 or more to use their tap the essence ability, and a bearing of 15 or more to use their arcane lore skill. Each archetype also has a table with its XP to advance, saving throws, and attack bonuses built into the front of the section. Of particular note in this section is the Yeoman class. It's freaking Samwise Gamgee, and it's awesome. And it really fits the Lord of the Rings aesthetic that James is pulling for. The only thing that I don't like about this section is the prerequisites for many abilities. For instance, the wizard's tap the essence ability requires a resolve of 13. However, mechanically, a resolve of 13 is almost indistinguishable from a resolve of 8. And so I know for me, a house rule would be immediately to remove the prerequisites for abilities within an archetype, and perhaps even removing the prerequisites for the archetype at all. If you want to be a poor wizard, that's your choice. Chapter 4, Equipment starts off with the encumbrance rules, which is simply that you can carry a number of significant items equal to your might attribute. 
it's nice and simple. It keeps everything easy for everyone to know about. And you're not tracking the weight of every individual arrow. After that is a list of adventuring gear, transportation, and weapons and armor. Transportation is fairly generic to D&D settings and as well as the equipment list. Weapons range in damage from D4 to D10. They do have a weight listed, but that's more for just flavor than anything else, as the system does use significant items. There's a small list of ranged weapons, and then we get into the armor and shields descriptions. This is where the game breaks some of the molds of traditional D&D. Where D&D typically had your armor increasing your armor class, this game it provides a damage reduction. Though if you reduce the damage all the way down to zero, you still get hit for one point of endurance. But there is a big difference, with jerkins providing one damage reduction and plate armor all the way up to five. Shields do not increase your damage reduction, but instead increase your defense value, what is re commonly referred to as armor class in Dungeons and Dragons, ranging from a plus two to all the way to a plus eight, though most characters will probably have a plus two or plus four. Finally, there are two small tables of assistance and hirelings. Assistants are non-combat NPCs that your players may need use of when performing a variety of tasks. This list includes alchemists, assassins, laborers, sea captains, and spies. The hireling list is significantly smaller with only five entries. However, I feel like hirelings are going to have a big flavor in this game, as combat is incredibly deadly. While combat is not supposed to be the be-all end-all of this game, when it comes down to laying swords and slinging arrows, having a few extra archers or maybe someone just carrying the torch for you may make all the difference playing the game. At this point during the review, I'm going to not be as specific to the sections going through it, but instead giving you some of more um, overviews as I don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty of the details and I could probably spend 20 minutes just talking about this section alone. So I'm going to hit some of the high points and just point out some things that were of interest to me. First off is the experience point system. Instead of gold for XP or monsters for XP, it's an achievement system. At the end of the night you look at whether your character fulfilled the achievements and then you get XP for it. These range from accurately portraying your character to potentially life-threatening acts of heroism and a few things in between. The XP is pretty low and you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this game if you actually just follow only the rules for this experience points. Next up is the initiative system. It's a d12 rolled by both sides. If you're rolling the same number as someone else you're acting at the same time. Also there are rules for surprise that are slightly different than other games. You still get to act in the first round but you can't switch with anyone else. You're going last. There are rules for if your character hits negative endurance. At zero, you're passing out. Anything below that, and you're starting to really risk some life and limb, with negative five endurance being basically just dead. After that, there's just a series of other rules that might not come in every session, but are very important nonetheless. Rules for exploration, binding wounds, intimidating foes, diplomacy, poisons, a renowned system, drowning, blessed and blighted lands, which are basically lands that will either heal you easier or actually prevent your healing. Finishing up the chapter is a two and a half page section on making camp. Rules from provisions, sleep, keeping watch, and relaxing around the campfire are all included, with relaxing around the campfire having particular interests and benefits throughout the game. Chapter 6 is Spells and Magic. The Hero's Journey treats spells and magic slightly differently than the Swords and Wizardry white box that it was based off of. 
Each spell, in fact, is a nested spell with three other mini spells underneath of it. So, for instance, you have the first spell mentioned in the game, Breathed in Silver, containing three smaller spells underneath of it, Befriend the Fool, the Lingering Phantasm, and the Slumbering Sting. These three spells very well mimic old-school D&D spells of Charm Person, Minor Illusion, and Sleep. The book contains... 21 spells, that's before they break down into their three discrete parts, so it's actually a containing of 63 spells. One of my favorite parts about the spells, besides the fact that nesting the spells allows you to make sure that your wizard always has at least something in his repertoire that could be of use, is the name of the spells. They are really just something to see written out, and some of my favorites are Fire Both Bright and Sacred, Hearkening of the High Hawk, and the Piercing Ferocity of Joy. All of these spells have very good effects built into them and make sure that a wizard, when they have only two or three spells, still feels like they are wizards and not just some dabbler. And I really do think that this system just nails Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings just perfectly. If you want to be a wizard and you want to be like Gandalf, like this is it. You, you've hit the mark here. For instance, I've, I've seen the discussions and the debates that Gandalf is no more than a fifth level wizard. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, when Gandalf walks into the mines and stamps his staff down, and all of a sudden you can see pure white light for, you know, a half mile, like, that's a powerful spell in this moment. Or when he's standing on the bridge of Khazadun and standing against the Balrog and just basically casts Ward Evil and says, You shall not pass. Like, that's a moment. And this game allows wizards to have those moments and really make a moment for themselves and, you know, really impact the game. But on the other hand, they're not fireballing every group of, you know, goblins they come around. And, you know, everyone just feels like, oh, well, why can't I cast, you know, why can't I cast fireball? That's not fair. You know, it, so they have their moments and it allows players to shine in different areas. And I think just magic knocked out of the park on this section. Chapter 7 is a 7-page section for the narrator, giving some advice for how to develop the game, both its themes, how to create new adventures, and how to run a campaign. This section does not contain any new rules, and is instead just a place where the author can communicate the themes and tones portrayed in the game to the narrators to make sure that everybody's on the same page. I could rant about the section and how good the themes are, but I'll save my rants till later. Chapter 8 is the menagerie where the monsters are kept. And holy crap, is the art beautiful. Oh my gosh. I could sit here and look at the art all day, every day, and just find more and new beautiful pieces in it. And there's a pretty good just like selection of the art. The one thing that I do want to point out is the monsters are very rarely actually the focus of the art. James has done a very good job, and Nicholas as well, with keeping the art focused on the heroes. This isn't a game about the monsters. It's a game about the heroes, and even the art in the game evokes that setting. Each entry has a small stat block with everything you need to get the monster up and running in just a few seconds, and then contains a small amount of lore underneath of them. I do want to point out that combat in this game is a very deadly choice your characters make. And I think one of the themes that James pushes for in this book, and especially the setting, is combat should always be a choice. And that players should have an option or opportunity to either run away, attack the situation from something other than let's cross swords, 
or you know have a conversation there there are many options that you can go with and i think that the deadliness of some of these monsters really weighs in on hey this may be a bad idea if you just decide to run in and fight so we're going to do an example from the book of one of the monsters that i think really demonstrates both the deadliness the story elements and just everything kind of wrapped up in one and that's the cockatrice Okay, we've all, if you've played D&D for any length of time, you know what a cockatrice is. It's a small little rooster thingy that pecks you and turns you to stone or looks at you and turns to stone. It's, it's a weird, mean little chicken, which is most chickens, but going on from there. So the cockatrice section starts with a simple uh, stat block at the top, defense, attack, endurance, damage reduction, special, death gaze. We'll get to that. It's saving throw and it's despair rating. Which the saving throw, or I'm sorry, with the despair rating being only a 4, meaning that first level characters aren't going to despair when they see it. Which is a very good choice, I think, by James. Looking at the, the actual rules of this guy. Should a cockatrice turn its gaze upon a mortal being that gets within 30 feet of it, that poor victim must make a saving throw or immediately be stricken dead on the spot. That's it. Saving throw or die. Fortunately, cockatrices are loud, crowing, and fluttering about on their flightless wings. They only surprise those who approach them on a 1 and 1d12. Legends say that the beak of the cockatrice can be powdered and brewed into a potion capable of restoring the petrified beings to life. This thing is a monster. It is a two-foot-tall chicken monster that will just flavor your whole night. And you can have stories and discussions years later about how you killed a little two-foot chicken monster and it was a good night. Let's just break this down for just a second, okay? Because I, I feel I feel like ranting for a second, so you're gonna have to hear this, okay? It can only kill you when you're within 30 feet of it. So that means you have any infinite amount of length of time to see this little guy before 30 feet and know, okay, this is what I'm facing, but he can't hurt me unless I'm close. Two, they make loud fluttering crowing noises. And anybody who's anybody, or at least passes an, an intelligence check, not that they use intelligence, insight check, sorry, will know, okay, this is a bad little dude and we need to figure out something to do with him. So if you've got villagers wandering into the woods and getting eaten by little chickens, you the players have many opportunities and ways of going through this and figuring out how you want to deal with them. Do you want to wait until they go to sleep? Do you want to come in at night? Maybe if, you know, maybe this is a good time to find out, hey, if it's nighttime and it's dark, does their dark does their death gaze still work on me within 30 feet? I don't know. Let's go slap a pig and see if he turns to stone or not. Like, there's plenty of opportunities for characters to make smart, intelligent decisions with their monsters and still have a good monster that's still deadly, that's still an, an encounter for the night and it'd be a two-foot chicken just saying guys going on from that just rant for a second sorry about that not sorry many of the monsters in the game are very strong they are meant to be monsters they are monstrous and that's okay the only thing that this does is some monsters are really going to require thought process on taking on Players who are used to D&D's um, CR ratings and the idea that every counter is balanced to them are in for a world of a hurting. So if you're the narrator, please make sure to your players, you tell them right up ahead of time, guys, combat is deadly. 
combat is a choice, make it a good choice when you make it. After 81 pages of monsters, we come to chapter 9, Treasures and Magical Items. The chapter starts off with a small section describing how much gold, jewels, and valuables most monsters are worth, which is about one gold piece per endurance point. Though this changes, zombies are probably worth nothing, dragons are worth more than you could ever imagine. But this isn't a game about making money and killing monsters and taking their loot. Instead, this is a game about heroes and the legends that your heroes will create along the way. And this legend is how your characters will get their magical items. Each level, your characters will get a myth point, with the opportunity for a second myth point if they have done a great deed worthy of legend. These points are spent on aspects, magical effects that are granted to your item, not through some wizard waving his hands over your sword and suddenly giving you a plus two. No, it's because of the legend that surrounds your characters. You don't get an undead Bane sword just because you walked into a magical shop and said, hey, I'd like to buy a sword today that's good at killing zombies. No, it's because your character has dedicated their lives to the eradication of the undead, and through their legendary actions, a sword has gained an ability. It now glows blood red in the presence of a zombie. And your sword now is dealing maximum damage every time it cleaves the head off of a zombie. There is also a section on heirloom magical items. Most of the time I see these being GM rewards, but if there's an item that a player is particularly wanting, these also make really good quest goals that you're trying to find a bag of pixie dust or a changeling's book of nightmares. And these can be great tools in future adventures as well. Finishing out the book is a section of inspirations, films, books, other role-playing games, and then we have a character sheet at the back. For me personally, I think The Hero's Journey is a fantastic book. I had largely moved away from D&D-based systems because I didn't enjoy spending an hour describing how I poke every single stone along the hallway because I know there's a trap there, or spending three hours fighting one troll because HP bloat meant that I had to attack him 35 times and oh, he's got regeneration. It's really dialed things down. It's really focused on that Lord of the Rings, British folklore setting where the heroes really are heroic. They really are people and they're trying to make changes in the world because the monsters really are out there and if they don't do it, who else will? I think it's going to be awesome. The PDF is fantastic and I know that you're going to enjoy playing this game with your friends. And that's the end of the episode. If you liked it, please share with your friends. If you'd like to contact me, I'm now on Twitter at nerd underscore opinion. Check back in two weeks when I'll be reviewing Blood Wraith by Jim Pinto. Thank you for listening to this nerd's opinion.